This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, first eight verses. When one of you have a, has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay, before, lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. The Word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we come to a, another difficult passage, Lord, and we just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide our hearts and minds as we look at these, that we may get a new perspective on what you want from the church and us as members of your church, Father God. And I pray the words that I speak be not of me, but be glorifying unto you, for it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. So this morning we're moving into this sixth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you just grabbed your Bible and you read through chapter 5 and then on into chapter 6, you may think that it's not really, it doesn't really flow correctly. You may think that Paul is rather abrupt and that there is perhaps a disconnect between chapters 5 and 6. And you know that last week as we looked at chapter 5, we examined immorality in the church and what the church was supposed to do or what we're supposed to do to be able to deal with that. And at the very end of that chapter 5, we saw that Paul wrote and talked about judging improper conduct within the church. And he encouraged the church to do that. As a matter of fact, he said that was our duty or obligation. He encouraged the church to be self-policing. He says God is going to judge those unbelievers that are on the outside and that we have a role, a duty to self-police as a church. And if there are those among us that are straying from God's path, as last week we saw, I don't know why I always point down here, maybe I think the guy's sitting on the front row. We saw the, the, the guy that was living with and having relations with his stepmother, we saw that was a problem and that Paul basically told him get rid of him and we saw that doing that was or had the end goal of bringing him back and we got to see in second Corinthians the second chapter how it worked that the guy saw his wrong he repented and he came back and then Paul encouraged the church to accept him and love him and so at the end of this chapter five or that chapter five Paul expressed a desire to, or for us to judge as a church and as a body. Now this morning we're kind of getting into this judging idea or notion a little bit more. 
And Paul's going to expand on it a little bit. So you can kind of see that there's a natural flow that starts in chapter 5 and permeates through this sixth chapter as well. So when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So we see Paul expanding this idea that as a church, we should deal with matters as they arise within the church. Same way that he asked us to deal with issues regarding immorality in chapter 5. Many people believe that the Bible doesn't consider things like suing each other or lawsuits. But as we're going to see this morning, in fact, it, it does. Unfortunately, many people believe that those are issues that are outside the purview of the church and shouldn't be dealt with by the church at all. But as we're going to see, that's simply not the case. Now, the people at the church or in the church at Corinth, they were routinely suing each other. We've seen that as we've gone through this so far, everything about the church in Corinth reflected the unbelieving society in which, it's, in which it was or in which it was built. They would sue each other simply to try to take what someone else had. And they were actually, as we're going to see in verse 8, they were essentially stealing from each other. They were claiming that they had been wronged, so they wanted whoever that had wronged them to pay up or to give them what they thought was due to them. Now, traditionally, the Jews did not sue in civil courts or outside of the synagogue. Every issue that that arose in the Jewish society was taken care of internally. And they did that because they wanted to demonstrate unity and they wanted to demonstrate love for each other. They didn't want the world reaching into the synagogue that did not know God trying to deal with questions among those who love God and know God. They saw that as inappropriate. In fact, it was considered blasphemy if they would go outside of the synagogue to try to get a unbelieving or an unbelieving court to decide a dispute that they had amongst themselves. In essence, what they were saying if they did that was that God didn't know enough to be able to take care of the problem. That God didn't have a solution and the only possible solution there was was there was was for an unbelieving judge or the world to deal with that issue. So you can kind of see this idea of why they saw it being blasphemous. That God didn't know enough to deal with it, so we're going to take it before those who don't know God. Now the Romans and Greeks, they accommodated the Jews and allowed them to take care of their issues internally. And we can see it in the New Testament, right? You remember whenever they were bringing Jesus to trial, the very first trial took place in front of the Sanhedrin. Whenever they grabbed Christ that night and they they arrested him and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the very first trial took place before the Sanhedrin. Now, there were limits to the accommodation the Greeks and the Jew or the Greeks and the Romans gave to the Jews. Capital punishment or the death penalty was beyond the permission. They could not enforce that. 
And so that is precisely why he ended up in front of Pontius Pilate, because only the Romans had the power to carry out capital punishment. But by and large, for all other types of disputes that arose between the Jews, the Romans and the Greeks allowed the Jews to take care of it on their own or in-house, so to speak. Yet here we have the people in the church at Corinth, and they were suing each other, and they weren't trying to resolve the dispute inside the church. They were going outside the church to unbelieving courts of law and have them deal with the issue. Once again, they were acting exactly like unbelievers. I mean, if if we saw this church from 30,000 feet, you wouldn't be able to tell that they were a church at all because they so closely resembled society. And I think that's a fear that I have in today's age. I think that Christians have so become included into society as can't really tell that we're any different than the world a lot of times. And that flies in the face of everything that God's asked of us. I mean, we are different. We're set apart. We're set apart for his purpose. That was the whole notion of the Jews and him choosing a people it was to set them apart to make them distinct from everybody else in the world the idea of circumcision was based on that they're different you're set apart you're set apart for a godly purpose the idea of baptism is the same notion that we're we're set apart from the world we have to be in the world yes but we're not to be of the world we're to be different than the world but too often times That difference scares us and intimidates us, and that's the last thing in the world we want. But that's what Christ has called us to do and be. So we have this group of Christians that were in the church at Corinth. They sued each other all the time, and then they would go to a pagan court. And by going to a pagan, unbelieving court, they were saying that Christ didn't have the ability to deal with the issues that they were that were arising between them. In verse 6 here, Paul's saying, How dare you, as a fellow Christian, put your disputes before people who don't even know God, who are unrighteous? Instead, you should be taking it to godly men of the church and resolving those issues in that manner and in that way. Paul was actually astonished by the actions of the members of the Corinthian church because the biggest principle that we are supposed to have as Christians was to love, or I'll say two principles, love and forgive, right? But there was no love, and we're going to see as we go through chapter 13 how much he drives home this notion that the Corinthians did not love as we are directed to love and there was no forgiveness everything revolved around this idea that I've been wrong and I deserve something because of it I'm not going to allow that person to do that or treat me like this or that Paul was saying, you are a family of believers. You're going to spend eternity together, and yet you're going outside the family and allowing a stranger to make decisions 
on how you relate to each other. It made no sense in Paul's eyes. The unbelieving strangers, the pagan courts, did not understand or cannot understand the heart of a Christian. Unbelievers see the world differently than believers. Ideas and, and goals and perspective is totally different in an unbeliever's eyes than a believer, or should be, than a believer's point of view. They don't put importance on the family of God. They don't put any importance on God's word. The utmost of everything that they live for resides within themselves. There is no selflessness. And if it is, or if there is an idea of selflessness, it's a facade. It's just there to try and look good. Verse 2, or do, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. I think I skipped verse 3. It's showing verse 3, but it's not coming up. Do you see the slide there, John? Is there a... Yes, please. There we go. Or you do not know that we are able to judge the angels. How much more then to matters pertaining to life? Now I'm going to ask that you go back to two. (laughs) So Paul basically makes an argument from greater to lesser here. He says, do you not know that you, we, us, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So he's saying, if you're going to judge the world, why can't you judge each other? Why can't you settle the disputes between you that happen in the church setting or as brothers and sisters in Christ? These small cases are nothing compared to the cases that you're going to get whenever you judge the world. Now, it seems that there is a little bit of conflict between this passage and the passage we looked at last week when Paul says you judge those in the church, God's going to judge those outside of the church, and yet here he's saying you're going to judge the world but I think the situation is a little bit different and the context is different. Because ultimately, at the end of it all, God will judge everyone. But there will be a time, and I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole and deal with eschatology or end times, but a millennial kingdom where there will be a reign of Christ for a thousand years and we are to co-reign with Christ. And during that time, there will still be evil on the earth. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. This co-reign with Christ that we will have and we will have the opportunity to do. And it is during that time when we will be involved in judging the world. So I I think that's the difference in context that Paul's getting at here. It's a little difficult 
but I, I believe that's right. That we will have the responsibility of co-judging or co-reigning with Christ. Then in verse 3, John, if you'll hit verse 3, he makes another argument from greater to lesser. You're going to judge the angels. So you're going to end up judging the angels, being all believers will judge the angels. Now the angels were the highest class of God's creation. The angels were the highest class of God's creation. And yet believers are going to be exalted to the place where we judge the angels. You might ask, what angels are going to be judged? How is that going to play out? We'll jump to 2 Peter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So we see, as I said, I don't want to get too far in the weeds and get sidetracked from the overall theme, because it can turn into a rabbit hole, but we see Peter referencing fallen angels here. We see him saying that they are in gloomy darkness and they are being kept in chains right now, in hell. This is also referenced in the book of Jude. Exactly who these angels are, I don't know. I mean, we know that there was a fall and a lot of those angels fell, but I do know there's still demons running around on this earth, right? We saw that in the New Testament with Jesus and when he cast out those demons. But nonetheless, there are angels that have fallen. There are angels that's being kept in chains in hell at this point in time. And Paul's saying, you're going to be judging those angels as well. You're going to be dealing with that issue. And so I believe that this is exactly the reference that Paul's making when he wrote about judging angels in the sixth chapter of Corinthians that we're in this morning. Paul's point is that if you, as believers, are going to judge something that is as exalted as angels... Why do you think you can't deal with issues and disputes among yourselves? Why can't you believers as a church resolve those types of issues? You're going to be doing much greater things in the future. You need to be dealing with the issues that arise in your church. Surely you're capable of dealing with those types of issues. So, verse 4, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing? So again, if believers are going to judge the world, the angels, why do you take your disputes to people who don't even believe in God, who have a totally different understanding of what right or wrong is? John, can you jump to verse 5 for me? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So again, Paul says, you should be ashamed. And we've talked about shame a lot as we've gone through this book, that there is no shame. And he doesn't beat around the bush. He's going to say, I'm saying this to your shame. You should be ashamed that you can't take care of these issues. 
Is it really a situation where no one among you is wise enough to be able to settle these disputes? And that wasn't a legitimate question. Paul was being sarcastic in that situation. And he's chiding them a little bit as well. And he's chiding them because if you remember, months ago we looked at, I think it might have been the second chapter, where they loved wisdom. They loved Plato and Socrates and all the philosophers of the world and they so enjoyed to think that they were smarter than everyone else. Wisdom was way high on their list. So now he's kind of turning the tables on them and saying, is there no one in your entire congregation that's smart enough to deal with these silly, silly, silly problems? Struggle. So he was turning it on them. Surely there's someone there that's smart enough to deal with these problems and settle these disputes. Instead, brothers go to law against brother, a believer against a believer. And yet you let an unbeliever settle your issue, settle your dispute. You sue each other and drag another believer before a non-believing judge to try to settle this. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Perhaps it's something you don't think about very often. I think that Christians have kind of lost sight of this altogether. He's saying suing each other is sinful in and of itself. Suing another brother or believer in Christ is sinful in and of itself. You say, well, he stole from me. He stole what was mine. Well, Paul's response is quite eye-opening here. What's his response there in verse 7? Why not rather suffer wrong? Hmm. He's saying the proper response is for you to suffer that wrong, let them have what they took, and move on. This flies in the face of everything that we as American Christians see day in, day out, does it not? You stole from me, I'm suing you to get it back. Paul says, no, that's not the proper response. The proper response is for you just to suffer that wrong and move on. Why not rather be defrauded? Being a Christian means that we are willing to take the loss in place of others. Being a Christian means that we are willing to take the loss in place of others. That we are to substitute ourselves for others' sufferings. That can be a hard pill to swallow. Because it is a selfish notion that someone has taken something from me and I'm going to do everything in my power to see that it comes back to me. That's a selfish notion, right? For a Christian who treasures Christ, truly treasures Christ above all else, he would rather suffer loss, pain, insult, injury, or damage than allowing others to suffer 
the same fate. That is a selfless notion. Vengeance to a Christian community is an absurd idea or notion. Unfortunately, it was not an absurd notion to the Corinthian church. And in fact, not only did they want to get back what they thought had been taken from them, that they actually wanted to get stuff that wasn't even theirs. They wanted more than that. They were accusing each other of harming them, and they wanted their day in court. They wanted revenge over the pain that they had been enduring. Paul exhorts them here that believers don't do that to each other. That's not the way believers treat each other. It's not the way believers settle disputes. We don't harm each other. We don't seek to get revenge from each other. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, recall that. If anyone takes your tunic, you sock him in the jaw, you grab it, you take it back, right? No. Of course not. What does he say? If anyone takes your tunic, you give him your cloak also. You give him your cloak also. It's not us good old American Christians, though, is it? If anyone forces you to go a mile, what do you do? You stop there and say, I'm out, I'm done. You go two miles with him. In Matthew 18, Peter's feeling very full of himself at this point in time, and he said, Jesus, if someone sins against me, I forgive him seven times. Is that good enough? Jesus said, no, that's not quite good enough, Peter. 490 times you forgive him. And you don't keep track of that. He's just saying you never stop forgiving someone for sinning against you. Ever. It never stops. Then Jesus goes into a a very eye-opening parable In Matthew 18, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. FYI, the king is God. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell to the ground and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a very eye-opening parable that we have here. Now, we see, I'm trying to look for, here we go. We see this, this servant owed the master 10,000 talents. To me, it just will be 10,000 rocks. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to enlighten you a little bit. One talent, one talent was equal to a thousand weeks of wages. One talent, a thousand weeks. So we have 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. So this servant would have to work for 200,000 years to work off this debt that he owed. That's a lot of money, and that's a lot of time. So we see here that it wasn't a small thing to forgive this debt or have this debt forgiven. So the master was going to take everything that this man had. He was going to sell him a slave, his wife a slave, his kid a slave, take all of his assets, everything was going to be sold off and this guy falls to his knees and he begs and pleads for mercy. And he actually... Have patience on me and I will pay you everything. He doesn't ask that it's forgiven. He just says, give me a little bit more time. 200,000 years. But give me a little bit more time and I will pay what I owe. The master didn't give him more time. He forgave him the debt. Totally wiped it clean. Did not owe anything any longer. Then the servant went out and found another servant who owed him money. A hundred denarii. Not even close in comparison. A hundred days wages. A little over three months to work this off. And you can see a lot by how this encounter began. He, He began choking him. Pay me what you owe me. And the servant used the same words that the original had used. Have patience on me and I will pay you back. Yet he refused. He put him in prison. You're going to stay in there until you've worked off what you owe. There was no sympathy given to his fellow servant. None whatsoever. And this didn't go well with the others, did it? They ran back and they told the master what was going on, so the master puts him in jail until he could repay his debt. He may well, very well still be in jail. In verse 35, though, we see what's actually going on. And we see the rest of the story. So, far, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you would not forgive your brother from your heart. This is this whole notion of, if he takes your tunic, give him your cloak. Forgive us our debts as we forgive who? Our debtors. That's the principle of who we are as followers of Christ. It's quite straightforward. We don't own anything in this life. 
We've been coaxed into thinking that we do. We own nothing. We're going to lose everything. If it's taken from you, God's going to provide once again. If someone wrongs us, then we are to forgive them and move on. God has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay in 200,000 years. He has forgiven us more than we can ever hope to forgive anybody in this life. He has forgiven us more than we can ever imagine suffering in this life. That's the ultimate principle. That's why we are to deal with the issues we have with each other because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't look like the world, nor should we act like the world. If Christ is our treasure, these things are just things. Rust will destroy them. Moths will eat them. But the things that are eternal, the joy we have from Christ, is what is everlasting. And if that's the utmost desire of our hearts, then we shouldn't look like the world when the world's utmost desire of its heart is to accumulate everything that they can and then beat those who take it from them. So until there are no longer disputes, and that is in the next life, we are to be driven by the love of Christ. In all things, in all that we do, and in all ways, God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, and he will always provide everything that we need in this life. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, as we examine this difficult passage, Lord, and and what it means to be a church and to be different than, than the world. Father, we ask that you help us to apply it to our lives every day, that we know and understand that nothing is ours, that everything is yours, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. We just borrow it for a little while. So when we are wrong, to help us to have forgiving hearts, because it is that selfishness that rises up within, within us, Father, that caused so much difficulty. We pray, Lord, that we could be more like you, more like Christ, forgiving in every way. Father, let us remember that you have forgiven us much more than we can ever forgive anybody here on this earth. Help us to love like Christ's love. Help us to love each other as Christ loves the church, Lord. Help us to exhibit grace and mercy and forgiveness to all of those around us each and every day. And through that and because of that, you may be glorified. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and